Welcome to a bonus edition of the Tent Talks podcast. Today we're going to hear mostly from Kester Bruin, who has just written another article in the Yoho Journal's Pirate series. From time to time, listeners to the podcast will know we host Zoomposiums, which help launch these pieces from the Yoho Journals. Kester Bruin, as you will hear, is an expert in all things pirate and radical theology. Kester, along with his friends and colleagues, joined us for a live Zoomposium, and this is the recording, featuring music, appropriately enough, from Kester's son and the punk band Play Dead. Here, to top and tail the show, is Company Car. Welcome, everyone, to another special edition of the Tent Talks. Listeners to the Tent Talks podcast know that every once in a while, we throw out a Zoomposium. And the Zoomposiums are book launches and discussion groups based around the pirate-themed <laughs> Yoho journals. The Yoho journals come to us uh, through unfold.media. And if you were to go to unfold.media and put in the code TENT10, you would get a discount on any of these journals that you would care to buy. And past listeners will know we've had some really fun and exciting guests, Eve Poole, Richard Beck, David Blower, all sorts of people. Even myself has been one of the, the writers for the Yoho Journals. And tonight, really glad to welcome Kester Bruin. Kester, we, we will hear much more about him in a second. But Kester Bruin is, in many ways, the inspiration for the whole thing, this whole Yoho project. So with that in mind, he's going to tell us a little bit more about the journals and also a little bit more about Kester. I'm going to hand over uh, Alicia Willis and Paul Milbank. If you could take over from here and we will start the evening. Welcome, Alicia and Paul, to the Zoomposium Tent Talks. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everybody. Yes, um, I'm just going to very briefly well, welcome everybody, but also mention that for me, I, I'm the person that gets to put all of this together. And it's a real, real pleasure. And especially this special edition of the Yoho. It's number six, volume six. And our ethos really as Unfold Media is our tagline is that no one person sees the whole picture. And so everything that we do, we think about the creative collaboration. And just to say that, you know, this is no exception, this special edition, because we've had quite a few people who were writing letters to Edith, our, um, our wonderful editor. So Emily Colvitt, uh, Paul Milbank, Simon Nash, David Benjamin Blower, Stephen Backhouse, India Hamilton and Timo Peach. Timo's on the call. Hi, Timo. And so all these people have given up their uh, time and effort to, to write to Edith uh, in response. And the, the idea is that we like to keep the conversation going. So thank you all those people who've written letters and all the others that have written letters in our journals as well. And also we've had, because this is a special edition, we've had a resident artist for this one. And uh, so uh, Philip Earnhardt, who's on the call. Hi, Philip. Um, so this 
was so much fun for me to feature some of the wonderful, wonderfully expressive paintings that Philip has created. He has a whole series based on mutiny, and hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about that later on. But I do really encourage people to check out his website and see the colour versions of these, because obviously we've only got the black and white ones in the in the journal and they are amazing so thank you Philip for being involved in in this journal as well and of course thank you to Kester and I'm going to hand over to Paul who's going to tell you a little bit more about why uh, we were thrilled to have Kester write this edition of the Yoho journal over to you Paul. Thanks Alicia Good evening, everybody. Lovely to see some familiar faces and some new ones as well. So it was back in 2012, Simon Nash, who is on the call, hi Simon, started thrusting copies of a book called Mutiny into the hands of some of his favourite troublemakers um, on the island of Jersey. It was an interesting time, the way that Simon describes it in the letter that he wrote to the journal. It was the hot summer of 2012, a strange time of fantasy economics and real world austerity. Sometimes it's hard to remember how bizarre the news was in those days. Anyway, that book, Mutiny, uh, of course, written by Kester, inspired lots of interesting troublemaking kind of work, mostly at that time, um, hacking the interface between uh, the public square, the political space and the church. Like all good troublemaking endeavours, and so much like the temporary autonomous zones that Kester talks about in his work, that eventually got shut down by the powers that be. But um, the legacy of that work lives on in various different forms, intersecting the world of, of business and politics and, and, uh, and the church. In particular, one of the expressions of that time is this journal that we um, have had lots of fun putting together over the last 18 months or so. So I'm going to introduce Kester with the words that we use to introduce him in the, in the journal itself. So a mathematics teacher working in southeast London. Kester Bruin has also become one of the leading thinkers on the philosophy of religion and technology. The power of his work lies in the synthesis of ideas from disparate fields, playing the history of piracy off against the psychotherapeutic reading of Star Wars, or pushing Harry Potter to play alongside both Batman and Shakespeare's Prospero. Accessible, challenging and richly rewarding, his work has been hailed on both sides of the Atlantic as some of the most courageous and unflinching theological writing of recent years. Uh, Kester is um, a sought-after speaker, has presented at festivals throughout mainland Europe, the UK and the US. In 2013, he presented at the prestigious TEDx Exeter event on his work exploring our enduring fascination with pirates, which is, of course, the material from the original Mutiny book. He's also written and presented for BBC Radio 4, is a regular contributor on technology in the Huffington Post, and he's written for Adbusters and the National Education Press in the UK. So over to you, Kester Bruin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And um, just a, you know, a, a genuine big thank you to everyone at, at uh, Yoho for giving me the opportunity to do this work of reflection. It, it came as a bit of a shock that the book was 10 years old. Um, so we all grow, we all grow older, and I, you know, I, I was um, just really, really uh, thankful to be able to look back at that work and spend some time um, reflecting on it, which is what the article is about. I mean, it was a strange time to be doing that because the politics and the economics was changing so quickly 
Um, you know, I don't know how many prime ministers we had over the course of the writing of the article. Um, and, you know, we've even changed a monarch now. So there's, there's been a, a whole lot of changes which have, which have gone on. But uh, I'm really, really thankful for you uh, to, to you for, for letting me write this edition. The other editions have been so fascinating. Um, and the opportunity for academics to kind of think outside the box a bit is, is just really, really special. So just, just to give you a little bit of background about the original book, Mutiny. Um, some of you may not have seen that updated cover. It was released 10 years ago, but it was written in obviously, you know, the, the time a little bit before that, which for various reasons would have, was a pretty tempestuous time for me personally. Um, and I was trying to find my way through that with the help of a, of a therapist. And it was sat in her front room, uh, as you do, uh, with the box of tissues there, just in case. <laughs> and, we were discussing fathers and sons, which um, will probably, you know, if anyone's been into therapy, that's kind of mostly what it's about anyway. It's just uh, that, that those kind of key relationships. And it was, it was, you know, an idea that that struck me literally in that room towards the end of that session, which was this, this odd thing kept happening, which I was discussing, that my son kept getting invited to these pirate-themed birthday parties. Um and he wasn't getting invited to any aggravated robbery parties. And I couldn't work out who these pirate figures were. Um, but reflecting on that, so just a, you know, a little bit of further background. I, I do come from uh, a kind of church background, as it were. I don't hold any kind of confessional belief really now. And, and my, my most recent book, Getting High, is probably the clearest explanation of where that's gone. But the, the whole kind of, uh, compost, as it were, of of that upbringing within a within a theological story uh, has been really important to me. And I was thinking about that parable of the prodigal son. You know, this this guy who basically says to his dad, "Right, give me my share of the money," which is effectively saying his dad is dead. You know, I'm going to head off and have a brilliant time. So the prodigal son story, and he commits this act of mutiny against his family, which is a pretty pretty extraordinary thing to do. Um. And as the story goes in the, you know, this, this, this fantastic parable, and it's very often told as this heartwarming thing about he goes off, he has an incredible time, the money runs out, and then he comes back, and it's this lovely welcome back. Um, <clears throat> but it struck me that actually that story is something of a tragedy. And that was a really profound shift for me. And it's a tragedy because in terms of a narrative arc, nothing really changes. When he when he returns back to his father, things are just as they always have been. In other words, it's like the father figure in that story has won. The son seems to have learned absolutely nothing. He returns to comfort, he returns to privilege, and one assumes just given the kind of um, economic context of you know, reading in, into that culture that it, you know, he's returning to, to wealth based on the hard labor of others. You know, we can pretty much assume that there'd have been, been agriculture or, or labor, you know, where, where there'd been some kind of slavery or something like that. So all of this kind of suddenly came to me right at the end of this therapist session. She was very politely looking at the clock and was like, right, time's up now. And I was like, oh God, what am I gonna do? So I literally went and sat in the car outside her house and pretty much the book was outlined in that car over the next 50 minutes, basically. And I spewed that out in that front seat, basically to put it succinctly, the act of rebellion 
is actually one that can be done very faithfully. And that there's a sense of faithful rebellion, which is incredibly important to transformation. And one of the people who I'm really pleased to see here uh, is Alex, and she's been actually working on how some of that faithful rebellion goes on in some of our big organizations for like, like you know, she's been working in the NHS and stuff. Uh, and others will have other experiences. I know that Barry Taylor's here as well. He's been doing some of that stuff. But it's that idea that destruction is not what pirates do. They're not doing destruction for destruction's sake, but they're doing a deconstruction in order to make things back in a different way, that the order is rebuilt better. And the, the other key thing about the, the kind of pirate stuff from the original book is that it's a moment when a store of wealth that's been enclosed for the few is broken open and returned to what you might call the commons. So if you're familiar with the work of the American essayist Lewis Hyde, he's written a fantastic couple of books, actually, one The Gift, and the other one Trickster Makes This World, Makes This World, which was a real inspiration for the whole pirate thing, where he talks about you know, our relationship with that, which is normally held in common, but which, which can be kind of grabbed into enclosed ownership. So the original pirates were really performing a rebellion against the kind of capitalist accumulation that we saw emerging at that time during that golden age. And it happened because there are new technologies which are allowing them to do that. So these ships, which are faster than anything anyone's built and able to get right the way across the world. And what's happening is that merchants and princes are kind of brutally exploiting slave and bonded labor to gain extraordinary riches. And they're extracting wealth from common land and local communities and far off places. Now, the, the problem being is that, you know, in terms of that prodigal son, there's never a proper opening of that enclosed wealth. There's never a sense of it then being shared. It's not like he comes back and says to his father, hey, you know, I've been out there in the world and there are people really struggling. There's real need out there. And his dad says, right, come on, then let's get out there and go and help people. There's none of that at all. They close the gates. He puts the ring back on and everyone's comfortable again. So <clears throat> the, 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 to go back to, to my son, what I was interested in is what happens when a child dons that pirate outfit? And why do we put our children into the clothing of these rebels. And it struck me that what we're doing is beginning with them that incredibly important conversation of committing faithful rebellion against their parents. But by parents, that represents these kind of big other structures that might be the church, it might be technology, it might be consumer capitalism. But we begin that faithful rebellion against those big structures. And it's that kind of necessary moment of finding out exactly who we are within those systems and working to bring some reformation of them. Now, in the book, I, in the original book, I track that process of faithful rebellion through that golden age of piracy into the French Revolution, then to culture with pirate radio and stuff like that. And from there, I try and dive down into some of the kind of psychotherapeutic elements of that, of how that particularly functions within the sphere of relationships and in the sphere of of, as I said, you know, these kind of big systems that that control us or we kind of give our, give our worship to. And, and I don't mean that just theologically. I mean, you know, we give our worship to, to these things. Um, you know, that's where we spend a lot of our time giving it, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of um, dedication throughout the day. So it's about how we kind of uh, change our relationship to those things. So um, 
the book really is about how disruption, acts of disruption can precipitate healthy transformation. And I was at the time in 2012, actually quite hopeful about some of that. And the book was written in the midst of, or in the aftermath of like the Occupy movement, we had the Arab Spring, and we had these kind of real world examples of, of these mechanisms in the book. I talked about like the temporary autonomous zone, the Taz, where a space is liberated for a short period of time. And it's not that freedom is gained at that moment, but it gives people a kind of smell or a scent of a new sense of liberation. And from that, they can begin to imagine what a new world looks like. And that gradually infects and brings about change. So 10 years on from all of that stuff, sitting down to reflect on it, I just had to hold my hands up and go, do you know what? that did not work out quite so well. Um, now, in fact, I mean, I, I talk about it in the original book that there was a possibility that that might not be how things went particularly well and that it could be co-opted. But, you know, something like the Arab Spring precipitated a very, very grim decade of repression and a violent regime change and the Occupy movement. Well, it, it hardly transformed aggressive capitalism. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but what I argue in, in the piece is that the kind of agile shapeshifter of aggressive capitalism has pulled off one of the most extraordinary feats in that it kind of took on the costume of piracy. So those in the elites actually started themselves to dress up as these pirate figures. And that's been really, really quite, you know, quite bedazzling and confusing for people. So in figures like Trump and Bolsonaro and Boris Johnson and Putin, et cetera, et cetera, we see powerful members of an established elite playing the role of these populist disruptors who are going to, you know, they say things like they're going to drain the swamp and they're going to clean up corruption. They're going to take back control for the people, all of that. But actually what they're doing is mugging people and increasing their power. So if you look at the economic stats, I mean, inequality has increased over that period. That actually, if you look at the, you know, the, the crash of 2008 and the kind of banking crisis and all of that, in the years after that, actually more money was just sent to those uh, financial institutions who kept it for themselves. There was absolutely no increase uh, in equality at all. So, you know, the, the, the money has kind of drained upwards towards that 1%. And the tactic of TAS that I explore quite a lot in the, in the original book has itself been co-opted. We are literally blinded by the chaos. And you've got really good evidence of this in what you're seeing in Ukraine, in terms of the Russian media, and what you're seeing in the way that Putin used his key advisor, who was a specialist in kind of avant-garde theatre, that, that actually sowing moments of bedazzlement is, is, a, is a political tactic used by the, by the strong and the elites in order to be able to hold on to power. So the question that the article then really goes to try and think about is this. How do we pirate the pirates? Like what is now the move for those of us who are genuinely interested in transformation and faithful rebellion? What, what moves are left to us when the powerful elites have co-opted the idea of revolution? And part of the inspiration came to me from a quote um, I'd noted down years ago. It was actually from a a review of a, of a Milan Kundera novel. And of course, Kundera himself writing as a Czech writer, um, he'd been brought up in the kind of absurd world of a, of a people's revolution. 
um, and you know the, a revolution that had to oppress people in order to make the people safe and all the rest of it. Um, and one reviewer wrote of of his his um, novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. In an age like ours, he wrote, when everyone to gain attention walks on his hands, the individual who stands on their own two feet will be taken for an acrobat. And that really, really stayed with me. That actually, that what the piece becomes is just a clarion call for civil service. It is for those people for all of us to kind of get stuck in and get stuck into that hard task of the mundane. That when everyone's kind of jumping around and doing huge somersaults in order to try and impress everyone, everyone's walking around on their hands. The call is for people to stand on their own two feet. And guess what? In doing so, probably to be mocked as, as acrobats. And what I mean by that in the book, uh, and I'll, I'll finish shortly, is about joining committees. It's about getting stuck in. It's about laboring sacrificially, just at those kind of really, really low level mundane things that are absolutely vital if we are going to preserve our democratic and empathetic structures. And I think, you know, there are people who can speak better of this to me, but, you know, I, I saw real dangers in what was what was going on in, in terms of American democracy with people packing the lowest levels of democracy with people who wanted to you know be election deniers and so on and thankfully just in the last few days we've seen that some of the sting has been taken out of that um one of the stories i tell in the in the article is is from danny kruger's book toffs which kind of relates his his um experiences at oxford among people like boris johnson and all the rest of it and he talks about how that crowd gove johnson all the rest of it would 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 spend their time at the oxford union with these extraordinary debates and one of the terms of abuse that you could shout at a speaker during those debates was facts. In other words, facts weren't a good thing. To, to, to draw on facts was, was absolute, you know, was the worst thing you could possibly do. It's far better to try and win without facts, uh, just by charisma alone. And I try and explore a bit in the article about what we mean by that, by that idea of charisma. But there were there at the same time, people doing far less glamorous work. Now, this isn't to be you know, kind of politically one way or the other. But, the, you know, to quote him, he says, you know, you've got David Miliband, uh, Ed Miliband, Yvette Cooper, Ed Balls, all doing real mundane work on student conditions, on rent reviews, on housing, on accommodation conditions, those sorts of things. So the, the article kind of finishes with me telling two stories, kind of bookended from the period of, as the book was published towards the, 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 the book, um, sorry, the 10 years of the book now, of two pieces of action that I ended up being called to take, which I think exemplified some of this for me. The first is, um, just as the book was published, the book is dedicated to a friend of mine, Nick, who, who died of cancer, very sadly, and his insurance company basically said, right, we're not going to pay up on his life insurance policy. Uh, and that was a kind of, you know, existential threat for his family. So a few of us took that on as a campaign, like, no, we're going to make you pay out. And we created the most extraordinary social media campaign. I will, I will say, it, you know, it was amazing. And we had hashtags going wild. We had Stephen Fry. We had Margaret Atwood. We had all these incredible celebrities retweeting, and it was just burning. Like my phone would just melt with all the, with all the retweets. That was when Twitter was a bit of a better place. And we, you know, we had so much of that going on, and you know, tens of thousands of people doing a digital signing of this thing. 
And the accumulation of all of that stuff was absolutely nothing. The insurance company just literally swatted us away. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Like, so for months, I thought that was it. Like we had failed. We'd failed that family. But as it turned out in the background, some other friends who were lawyers were just quietly getting on with putting together a case to go to the financial ombudsman where they appealed the company's decision. And it took a month and it took them hundreds and hundreds of pages of just mundane work going through little details. And that was how it was won. So my great, you know, clicktivism, all the hashtags, and everything didn't really do anything at all. I think it created some kind of structure whereby the company perhaps felt a little bit glad to be able to settle. But the movement happened through the mundane work. Now, cut to 10 years later, last year, I ended up having to lead, sadly, a group of people out in industrial action uh, over pension rights. So my, my work as a, as a workplace union rep, I represent about 3,000 staff in education across 23 schools across the country. And yeah, it was up to me to, to try and call these people out to take industrial action because of um, uh, a, you know, an organization wanting to basically tear up our contracts and, and fire and rehire us on worse conditions. And there was you know, this group of people around were like, right, you know, let's get a hashtag going, let's do all this. And I was suddenly like, actually, do you know what? No, I, I just don't think that's the way that that's going to affect change. And what we need to do is actually to put our bodies on the line, not try and go for any bedazzling online stuff, but that simple hard action of laying down your labor and of actually getting out on the streets and putting your body on the line in that place. Uh, and in fact, we we did, you know, you know, you'll read the story in the thing. I don't want to talk about that too much now, but we did win, which was amazing. Now, I, I talk at the end of the piece about a book that Olivia Lang has written, who is a wonderful writer. And her book is called Everybody, which is really about the place of the body in protest and the place of the body in, in, in uh, you know, trying to gain and regain rights for people. Um, and she writes at the end of this, what you cannot do is assume that any change is permanent. Everything can be undone and every victory must be refought. And we see that now in Roe versus Wade and what's going on there. But it is possible to remake the world, she says. And it's to that hope that we must cling, even as the vessel appears to be sinking. What we need to do, she says, um, is, sorry, <clears throat> She says, it's impossible to know if it will ever be achieved, but I'm certain about anything at all. It's that freedom is a shared endeavor, a collaboration built by many hands over many centuries of time, a labor which every single living person can choose to hinder or to advance. So I end the piece really talking about the place of the body. I mean, what if Rosa Parks had not put her body in that place? What if she'd just written a letter? What if the millions of people uh, hadn't actually moved in terms of those protests on the Black Lives Matter stuff, you know. Um, what if we took our online outrage and took that outside? What if we actually stood shoulder to shoulder in the streets? And the pirate for me is not necessarily that person who is the kind of uh, glamorous rebel, but these were people who put their bodies on the line 
in order to sustain human rights. And the story of how that happened through the French Revolution and, and you know, into kind of international conventions on human rights is one I tell in mutiny, but it's one that I want to kind of re-emphasize that our job in terms of pirating the pirates is actually to be bodies in the room um, and to, you know, to commit that faithful rebellion in that physical space. Either you submit to the world or you change the world, Olivia Lang says, and, and, and it's that process of being physically present to do that that I think is the key challenge for us now. Thank you. Thank you, Kester. Thank you so much. I, I really, I really loved the the piece that you wrote for the OHO, and uh, I, I found myself quite kind of um, inspired, such as an insipid word. How ironic that inspired is an insipid word. I found myself sort of riled up, right? In it, sort of you, you were poking like a hornet. You were poking my hornet's nest. That's what I felt like, and it was good. And uh, but one thing that I, I was new to the idea was the temporary anonymous zone. So here's what I want to ask you about. So you you started your mutiny book based around the Taz, the temporary autonomous zone. Yeah. Now in the Yoho piece, 10 years later, you said that was a failure. What? And then now you start talking about the permanent autonomous zone. So I want to talk to you about the word permanent. But before we do that, can you just briefly outline to us? If we haven't read Mutiny, what is a Taz? Why did it fail? And what is a Paz? So a Taz is is a term used by uh, uh, an American thinker who one of his names he goes by or went by because he recently died months ago. A guy called Hacken Bay or Peter Lamborn Wilson is another of his, his names, who is a very, very radical anarchist. I will definitely say that much of his writing is beyond the pale in, in many ways and, I, and I'm not a subscriber to a lot of his thinking but his work on the temporary autonomous zone I think was truly an inspiration to me um, and effectively what 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 it is if you haven't been to a festival and come away feeling gosh there's a different way of mm. living you know mm-hmm. um now, the idea of it being temporary is important because no one wants to live uh, like they do at Glastonbury the whole time. I mean, it's great for a couple of days to change that structure, but you don't want to live that way forever. Um, the other reason why something is temporary is because it is it is hoped that by doing that, you will avoid violence. So if you're going to create a new space within which people might live, mm-hmm. um, you're either going to have to defend that by creating a firm boundary or you're going to have to push it outwards you know so what do you do in terms of keeping those spaces as they are well the temporary autonomous zone says no you don't even try and do that you create a moment of this kind of dazzling extraordinary thing Mm -hmm. hakim bay calls it where something is penetrated by the marvelous and that creates a moment of like, wow, life can be a bit different. Now, in terms of the links to pirates, he sees in, in his kind of his his work on history that pirates would land in a particular place and these communities, which are off the map, and create these extraordinary moments of liberty and a life, you know, kind of completely everything is is uh, mm. is, is 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 possible. And then they move on and they have to move on because if they stay there, they will be found and you know, violence will be meted out. So the Taz is this moment where it gives you a sense 
of the possibility of something being different. Mm-hmm. And that sense kind of begins to infect more and more people. And then, as you see with the with the French Revolution, that actually builds into a into a particular movement. Now, the problem with the temporary autonomous zone is that I feel our lives are now so stacked full of moments of bedazzlement that we don't really actually appreciate what those particular things are. Okay. So we it's partly in the face of extraordinary technologies where things, you know, kind of pop up all around us all the time. It's not as if we're living particularly routine lives with suddenly this festival moment comes in. It's just that we are being assaulted all the time with, wow, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, you know. So actually what what we're lacking is something a bit more grounded and permanent. Now, the idea of the permanent autonomous zone is probably a bit misleading in the sense that it, it, it's, it, it was very much at the fringes of, of some suggestions that Hacken Bay put out in some other essays. It was more kind of thoughts towards this that he never particularly expanded upon. But what I've tried to do in the article is to take some of those principles and say, okay, you know, what might it look like to do things which were looking to build things a bit more permanently? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not about something that immediately dazzles and goes away, but something which is just there, which carries on going, which carries on going, which which is marvellous, even by the sense of it's continuing in the face of whatever. And, and I think that that's what the permanent autonomous zone is about. It's about that extraordinary thing of, people just keeping on keeping on doing extraordinary things that are in the ordinary every day i guess when i hear the word permanent i get to me that just feels like hegemony and empire again like it just feels that so so how do you i mean how can you have something permanent that is also ever new yeah and i would i would completely agree with that i don't think the word choice is particularly great i'm using his word choice right not something that he particularly expanded upon so you know i I would agree with you entirely there um and you know let's be clear this is a corporate endeavor so i'm not going to sit here as the expert and say i think i've worked all this out and please everyone listen to me because i've got the final answer you know i want to know okay you know what does this look like what does this look like in terms of that as a seed of thought which could go through so yeah i agree the idea of permanence is wrong but what it's saying is that it's something that sustains i suppose you could put it that way it's a sustaining note um permaculture perhaps well and permaculture again permaculture is a kind of interesting um way of re-referencing that yeah so it, it is about that 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 sense of momentum and of weight and gravity on, uh, of something, not that it just is, is going to go on forever, but yeah. that it actually just sustains and it deliberately sustains for a longer period than something which is just like, bang, and it's gone. Now, the Taz, that was very much the thing. Yeah. But in the age of, in the, age of the political move where you're constantly getting so many dead cats thrown on the table, distract from this and distract from this and distract from this, you know, and I hope everyone's aware of the, the principle of the dead cat you know if you're in political trouble someone throws a dead cat on the table and everyone goes oh my god there's a dead cat you know that's incredible but it, it feels as if our politics is so run by the dead cat now right that it, it just is like this almost 
everyday thing of distraction and what needs to cut through that is something a bit quieter a bit more sustaining and a bit more uh with that little bit of momentum that says oh no 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 we are just here for the duration we are going to keep on sustaining something over that longer period of time well we and i think a... you know to, to to finally to turn yeah, that, i think to get back to the idea of of pirates and the and the the Jolly Roger and the, the kind of skull and crossbones. The what's fascinating about that. So the original symbol that would be put into the ship's log uh, when a sailor died was a little skull and crossbones with wings coming out of the skull. In other words, it's fine. They're going up to heaven. Um, and what the pirates did was to remove was to remove the wings. So the skull and the crossbones is basically saying, "We are the dead." Like yeah. you had us for dead and yet we remain still. And there's something fantastically has about that, you know, like, yeah, right. You thought you had us dead and yet we are still sailing. We're still yet here. We're still sustained. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's going to go on forever, but there's something terrifying to a political establishment that deals with bedazzlement yeah. where people are like, we're still here. Oh, by the way, we're still here. And we're still here and we're still here and we're still going to do these things. And they're kind of not knocked back by the dead cats, but like, thank you, put the cat on the floor, bury the cat, you know, but we're still here. And the important point still stands. So we've had a question come in. So we're getting some comments and stuff coming in, which is great. I'll just tell everybody, keep, keep them coming. But there's a question that's coming up about like, how do you carve out? What if most people just don't know how to perceive the events and recognize the archetype. So we're talking about pirates as if they're like a, a separate mode of being that's not a villain and it's not a hero. It's something else, right? But what? But right now, says this commentator, the, the media just keeps using hero, anti-hero, villain, hero tropes. How can we expect people to know how to be a pirate, right? When they don't even know how to diagnose what's going on around them. So the power yeah. plays are just part of our world. So how do you educate? If no one is going to give you the education to overthrow the powers, because of course they're not going to do that, how do we get the masses to see through these lies? That's the question. I think one of the things that's key to that is community. So if, if you are going to commit that act of mutiny on a ship, you cannot do that simply by yourself. You have to do that in collaboration with a group of people who are prepared to take that journey and that risk with you and you'd learn that together i wonder if it might be a good time to bring in alex yes uh, if she's still there because she's the one who's been doing some of this stuff um you know within communities and structures now alex you can talk about what you want to talk about but i you know i think it'd be great to hear from you about some of the work you've been doing with that fantastic book be more pirate which um does reference mutiny but it's but it's kind of you know really really brilliant um and and um yeah Alex, why don't you kind of talk about some of that? Because I think you've got a better answer to that question than I'll have. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Obviously, you know, I agree I, um, deeply with um, what was written in Mutiny. And in a way, Be More Pirate and the community that's formed off the back of that is a testament to some of the ideas you laid down. Because they the people who I work, you know, the community that we formed very much recognises that sense of it being a, like a civil a citizenship a, a, a civil service of some kind and that it is that middle ground between hero and villain um 
Yeah, so I, I agree. I, I spend my entire working life trying to redefine the, the identity of pirate as, as something that existed only within a collective and not as a lone rebel. Um, and I think I arrived at a very similar conclusion to you when I was trying to understand who was responding to this book, Be More Pirate, and why they were responding so passionately. And it was always, it was either people who worked in big organisations like the NHS, sometimes big corporates, sometimes um, public, other public sector organisations, where the sense of this is the Navy in a minute. And, and, and I've learned the rules so I so that's why I need to break them. Not not I'm not the persona of I'm kind of like a, a rebel who doesn't like authority authoritative uh, authority inherently, which mm. is kind of what I guess the the archetype of a pirate or rebel is. It's this this disruptor, as you've described, this kind of agent of chaos. And actually, what I was seeing people come forward, the people who really needed this and got it and understood it, were people who, yeah, had learnt the rules of the game and were like they're broken and we need to overturn it but maybe hadn't got the requisite kind of courage support and understanding and, and community plays a huge part of that I think that's like the number one lesson I say like don't even try and attempt it alone form a small faithful crew of two to five people where you um yeah where you you kind of start to build some trust between you and find a, a very small rule to break that can um, demonstrate your own courage to yourself and to the people around you um, to kind of get started. And um... uh, Alex, is this is this process happening within one organisation, or are you finding fellow travellers across the the different disciplines, or are you like for the NHS, for example, are you finding like people who know the rules, they know the system, and then they want to break the system within the NHS? Is that the way you're, you're working to find? Breaking, yeah, breaking the system. I don't, yeah, yeah, I, I'd say that. So to give yeah context, our network, our community, Be More Pirate, spans across loads of different um, sectors. Like uh -huh. we have, yeah, so we have the, like what I call the NHS pirates, which have some like subsections. So there's sometimes there's a small group, like five, but then there's a kind of wider, broader um, group that come together occasionally. And we come together to just, tell stories about what's worked what risks are you taking what's paying off when has right. it failed it's, right. it's, it's a courage refill more than anything but to also reinforce the narrative as Kester said like you've got to tell each other yeah. in order to not pay so much attention to the kind of overarching media narrative that's yeah. going on everything's failing everything's broken but actually we've got no power in all of this because I see examples of people standing up and doing things all the time so I'm quite more more of an optimistic um outlook um but yeah it's there's there's tons of different groups there's like a whole a thousand people in like the arts who call it the artistic mutiny it started with a woman in bradford we have um oh, i've seen all yeah we've got a, a community in colville which is just outside of like leicester which is a very much left behind town where they have been working for three years under the banner of piracy to take over community buildings so that they're owned by the community there's a similar one down in um, Falmouth in Cornwall who are doing that with a, trying to get a, a community land trust to um, you know deal with the housing crisis in Cornwall um, where there's just lots of homelessness and lots of also empty houses mm. so that yeah it kind of spans across all but they do come back to that that ethos that, that Kester is really talking about which is 
and and I think that also a lot of people had a had a sense of um just to answer the question that came up in the chat maybe about how do you educate people well I, I actually noticed in our community that you do, you don't you can't impose I don't think you can impose this on people I think most of the people I know have had a triggering or activating moment where they've suddenly had a almost like a revelational insight that it's up to me to do something if I want to see any change I've got to take the responsibility and kind of step up into that that mm-hmm. pirate level of leadership or yeah the, the external stability that they thought was real is actually false and fragile and that's just can't become so apparent that they couldn't ignore it so, which is yeah so it's like this kind of what I call it the, the, that's the mo- moment of mutiny because it's actually the moment of mutiny against your false like narrative yeah um, yeah but it's interesting. I, I think sorry to um to to and play, uh, tell one of the stories about, about from the book. So one of the, yeah, one of the stories that's very important to me is the is the story of of, of Odysseus and and uh, you know in in Homer's in Homer's Odyssey, which is which is interesting in that you know that Trojan War is probably thought of by by historians as a kind of series of pirate raids, as it were. And Odysseus, you know, is having this whole thing about how is he going to get home and all the rest of it. But actually, the story ends with him guess what? He's already home. He just can't get it into his head that he's home. And the the reading I take from that is that there's a moment, which I think Alex summarized really well in the kind of psychotherapeutic process where we come to take responsibility for ourselves and decide that it's time to move on in, in, in that way, having seen things in that new narrative and take responsibility. Now, to put it in, in different language, it's about recognizing the way that the these big other systems function around us so i'm sure this will be true in the nhs it's definitely true in education it's definitely true in kind of so many ways but it's you know it's like the it, it it's like the, the the person saying look you know i don't want to send you to the gulag you know if it was up to me i wouldn't have to send you to the gulag but the mm-hmm. system says you got to go to the gulag so i'm really sorry but you know it's not me it's it's the system now, that's the idea of the big other that, that kind of dehumanizes us. Mm-hmm. And what happens when people get together and start going, wait, wait a minute, you don't want it and you don't want it and you don't want that to happen. You don't... So why are we kind of bowing down to this big other? And that's where these little ruptures begin to occur in the power of the big other. And I think what we've seen politically is that people have become very worried about that. So we get these kind of populists rising up who are in a sense reasserting the power of the big other but through the guise of disruption and that's kind of doubly dangerous and really really difficult to do so it takes that extra kind of smarts of like wait a minute i kind of see what's going on here but it's going to take me a while within a community to be able uh, to do that yeah and someone's just mentioned the good law project um i'd love to talk to to philip about um you know how how things have been you know playing out and how you came to stuff in, in, in that kind of artistic way, Philip. Um, <clears throat> hey, thank you for this discussion. It's very interesting to, to listen and to learn and to experience some more of this pirate thinking. And um, I, I'm very thankful for a couple of people here on in this ex, um, symposium. It's thanks to Barry Taylor that actually got this book. Um, I don't know. I don't remember exactly how that happened, but somehow he mentioned it at one point. And um, 
And as I mentioned in the book, in my description was that this, this really gave me the language that I needed to kind of explore this aspect of my art, which I'd always had always been kind of this way because I come from a, I'm a missionary son. Um, I grew up in Switzerland as a kid here because of my parents being American, spending 20 years in Switzerland, uh, part of a very conservative evangelical group. And so <clears throat> 20 years ago, I began this process of my own to um, become a pirate within the community that I was in, that I was actually also very much uh, entrenched in as a leader. Uh, and needing to find language was very difficult. So I started to paint. And a lot of the work that I just started doing was coming through the arts for myself. So I have an art background, graphic design background. And, and so I'm thankful for um, for Kester putting this book together and just really launched me into a whole nother level of expressing what was already inside of me and gave me that ability to. So um, it was fascinating to work through this whole idea of mutiny. Um, extremely fascinating work. Uh, seeing and, and just finding stories of people that have been doing this all along and then putting them on canvases and, you know, reading, researching about them and then, and then putting that through my way onto the, uh, onto the canvas. So, and it just by happenstance that, that I'm able to be here and to be, and be featured in this uh, great journal. And um, it was just kind of like snap, snap, it happened. And thanks for you guys at the journal to put this together and just invite me in that part of the family it was beautiful. It was just amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Philip. That's that's great. I wonder if we might quickly hear from Barry, who's currently going under the name of Maria. Um, <laughs> I know Maria well, so he's using her, her login, but I know you've got to jump off at eight, Barry. But Barry is um, yes, a really, really great friend who, who um, I'm really pleased was there when I was launching the book in L.A. Uh, many years ago. And Barry has been a, a real kind of influence in terms of my own thinking about rebellion and piracy. Barry. Thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, well, yeah Maria is my stage name. As you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, just actually to go back to, to Steve's earlier point about the permanent autonomous zone versus the, the, the TAS. I, I think what's interesting to me is the whole notion of the TAS w was very much a sort of, I think, uh, the creation of kind of an event environment that was an alternative world that you could exist in temporarily and hopefully carry the spirit of that back in you know so I, I guess the sort of contemporary example would be Burning Man you know where mm -hmm. you create this but it's a but it's parasitic you know it only exists because the other world exists and it depends on the other world in many ways to sort of happen and, and I think that the, the notion of the and and you know the, the word permanent definitely problematic but 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 i think permanent in the sense that rather than trying to locate something elsewhere the idea is that you actually locate it where you live yeah. and not the spirit of some other experience of life but 
an, another experience of this particular life. So not the, um, I don't know, not just, it's not, it's a bit like, you know how like, uh, you know, if you wanted to access the the world that C.S. Lewis talked about, you had to go through a wardrobe. <laughs> and if you wanted to access, you know, Harry Potter, you've got to go to King's Cross and and find this like weird platform. It's always like going to another another world. I, th- I think the what what I sense that that Kester was getting at in this kind of review is really thinking about yeah yeah yeah, but it's not another world. It's actually very much this world and carrying uh, an, an, an awareness that the the real transformation is the transformation of the immediate everyday ordinary world that we find ourselves in i think i know i just see, that. see that's what i was fucking trying to say the whole time so um <laughs> so thank you barry <laughs> can i can i put a question to barry and to philip and timo and, and other kind of the artists and the and, and Kester as well, the rebel outside thinker types. How do you now carry yourselves in a world in which, as Kester was pointing out, so many of our noisiest, most popular public figures also carry themselves as outside artistic free expression thinkers? And their names are like Donald Trump and <laughs> Boris Johnson, right? Like how how do we carry ourselves? How do you carry yourselves in this age oh, well, where I, your roles are being usurped? Well, I, I don't think you can ever avoid that. And you can't lay claim to anything anyway. You just have to go, yes, yeah, so what? So then you just have to in, you have to um inhabit um you just have to inhabit your own world and do and, and work your own work with the with the knowledge that, that that's always gonna be there. It will never go away. That you know yeah. it's the 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 whole i think the the real notion is that uh there is no utopia to be had here there is no there is no wonderful world where everything's going to be fantastic there are always going to be assholes yeah. and the goal is really not to be one yourself as much as you can yeah, sorry i think it's that, not about being I free expressions about not being on... a dickhead yeah, yeah well, there you yeah. go don't be a dickhead so yeah. I think that I think that impinges on the work that I did in in uh, my most recent nonfiction book, Getting High, which is which is a book that explores our fascination with kind of going up there as if up there is going to be this utopian place, which of yeah. course is what is how people have viewed space for hundreds and maybe thousands of years. That up there is pure, up there is the heavenly realm, and it's about learning again to live with our feet on the ground and. You know, if I could say anything in terms of about a, 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 a kind of sustaining idea from the from the uh, upbringing I had in the church is that actually what we do is we keep crucifying our gods and we have to keep that process of putting the God to death in order that we might then become the body. You know, and in, in terms of those, you know, if, you, if you're in that Christian tradition, we are the body of Christ. Like there is no God. There is no, like we, we put it to death and that's a good thing. So what we now do, we act as that action within the real world now. We're not trying to get to another world. I think that's brilliantly put by Barra. We aren't trying to get into this right. uh, 
temporary worlds somewhere else. We're not trying to go through the wardrobe. We are trying to exist here and to remake, as it were, you know, heaven on, on earth rather than try and escape out to, to somewhere else. So a question has come in. Are you still hopeful for whole system change? Or must we, this is the quote, or must we be content with the possibility of small localized expressions of freedom? Is whole system both. change utopian? Is that what you're talking about? I mean, you, one has to hope but I think what what one does is to is to create crystals where you are, and and I think to have a sense of proportionality about what you know what can I do, um, and it, it's about saying okay, well if I can do something here, and my hope is that someone will do something else there, and if they don't, okay, you know. Um, so we have a hope for whole system change. Mm -hmm. It works on that kind of sense of that, you know, the best I can do is is this amount here, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that that that's that's the biggest hope. But 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 what I don't think we say is, oh, we're going to change the whole thing. And I think you know, um, Alex would probably agree with that. That the wrong thing to do would be a whole scale. Yeah. rebellion within the nhs yeah now interestingly a really good friend of mine is director of strategy for the nhs and i was chatting to him about some of the stuff that alex had been telling me about and he was so enthusiastic like he wants that stuff because he realizes that it's such a large organization that there is no one godhead figure that can make it right um from the top down but mm -hmm. you need these little crystals of things going on, creating little revolutions at that at that point down below. And you have to hope mm -hmm. that it will happen. But you can't then say, oh, because we've done this change here, that's going to work for everybody everywhere. Well, I would point out that that is a godlike way of working, by the way, according to <laughs> Christ. Christ in theology is not a top down domination. It is a on the ground mustard seed getting into everything. Uh, I think there'd be anyway. there'd be many there'd be many uh, who would see it a different way. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but which is an interesting, which is an interesting, you know. And it and it really, I guess, to reference my first book, The Complex Christ. You know, it it's about what's your theory of change. Yeah. How do you believe that change can happen within the place where you exist? And and you know, there's people here who exist in in various different. In, in various different places uh, and in various different systems. So Johnny, uh, who it's lovely to see here, and thank you, Johnny, for your kind words about the piece. But, you know, Johnny's working within the system and you think, okay, you know, what's the theory of change within that system? How does change actually practically happen? If you're working for a social justice charity, if you're working for the NHS, you work in education, how does that theory of change happen? And what do you then do? And I think that's a really important point. And the, the point about pirates is that they had a very, very extraordinary theory of change, that nothing was going to change unless they put their bodies on the line because their bodies were disposable. And to go back to Olivia Lang's book, through history, the bodies of the marginalized are disposable. You know, <laughs> they will just be got rid of. So 
it, it is about those at the margins respecting their place as physical people and us accommodating them because I can't speak as a marginalized person, but us accommodating that and, and saying, yes, you know, our theory of change is that bodies are put on the line um, in order for, for real transformation to happen. Johnny, I don't know if you wanted to come in on any stuff because I'm, I'm, I have an enormous debt to pay to Johnny for, for many, many years for, for all his thinking, the ways that he's, you know, inspired me. Thank you. Um, I don't know if I have anything to say. I mean, I, <laughs> I absolutely loved the uh, journal. I mean, I like the journals as a whole, but I particularly liked your piece on it. And I think, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the critique uh, very much of Johnson and others. I think uh, I recognised that co-opting of the pirate. But I think I was particularly interested in, I can't remember what the phrase was, a gentle presence and the permanent autonomous zones and thinking what does that actually look like and uh, you know the place I I felt better about myself (laughs) in that I've worked for CMS for 20 years and you know you stick in a place for a long time a theory of change is you got to stick around a while in some things so but I I was thinking about family um you know as a place which is can be hard but parenting and you know it takes you to what feel like some quite old-fashioned spaces and how you mm-hmm. how you develop values and i kind of half expected you at the end of the thing to say i'm going to restart vox because it felt like you need a community space to work this stuff out so i was thinking like you know vox is dead long live vox or something but yeah i mean it felt like uh a call for yeah yes community organizing longevity commitment to place which is very much like the kinds of change that changes that happened in in the civil rights but there's a yeah there's a sort of paradox in your take in terms of faith and that it feels like you're animated by faith while you've kind of deconstructed it so i'm fascinated by the the place of the christ story in your own life but actually it's power to to effect change as well yeah so yeah lots of lots of things i loved it i mean i'm I'm just sad we're not in a pub drinking real beer so i'm drinking real beer here but anyway so and and yeah again i i'm very committed to getting a kind of physical meetup to talk through some of this in future it was just uh didn't quite happen today but that will happen yeah. uh interestingly barry i think has now had to leave us just scrolling through but but he and i've talked about you know, not a reboot of of the Vox community that we were doing, but but actually doing something, uh, you know, kind of on the ground uh, as a as a bit of a reboot of something. Um, I'd love to hear Paul talk a bit more about what you've said about the kind of psychological stress of of past, because I think that's that's a very very mm. profound comment, Paul. So if you and, could, and we also have that, Alex also has a had a comment that she wanted to make as sure. well. And I wanted to bring her back in as well. So yeah, sure. Uh, Paul, tell us about the painful place of Paz. And then Alex, we want to hear from you too. I guess um, systems have their own preservation uh, mechanisms built in, don't they? Uh, a bit like a, um, an organism tries to spit out, um, you know, kind of foreign, foreign bodies or viruses or tries to combat them. 
systems and large organizations will um, do the same for agents within them that threaten their their existence or that disrupt their um, continuation. I guess, you know, that's the sort of only, I guess, large organizations are psychopathic because all they care about is their own preservation. They don't have any other um, objectives or, or emotions if, um, in that sense. So, so sitting in that place, having all of those um, psychological dynamics thrown at you, um, feeling like you are constantly being um, taught to think that you're the problem. And if you would just get in line, um, then then your experience would be much easier and better. Or if you don't like the way things are done around here, then you can you can bugger off. Mm. Um, so so I think that's a really difficult place to be. And it's amazing how many psychological psychological tricks can be played on you and how much you can lose touch with your own um groundedness in in doing something righteous in 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 the midst of organizations like this so the point i was just trying to make is forums like this one where we may be all trying to live out this this um this pirate lifestyle um separately and in different places but nonetheless can share those experiences and can ground each other in the um in the goodness of the task that we're sharing in are absolutely um, essential for being able to preserve that role over time, because I think none of us really has the psychological strength to do it over time without that without that support from from others. Um, it, eventually, the the organisation will get the better of you and will convince you that you're you're um, you're the problem and that you'll you'll either end up leaving or you'll end up caving in. Um, so yes. I just want to um, I want to sort of reaffirm the the importance of this kind of forum and how encouraging it is for me as somebody who works in a very large organisation in a in a in a governmental organisation. Um, you know, dealing with lots of bullying and uh, lots of attempts to keep things exactly as they are forever. Um, how important this is for me. This seems a good place to bring in Alex Barker as well. So. Oh, Paul, I feel like I really feel your pain because I just hear this all the time and we try and do small amounts of strategizing to um, to support people. Because I do think, you know, we can externalize like, oh, it's the system, but we are all the system. Like we choose every day to uh, to keep it going or not to keep it going. And, and yeah, completely like it's very hard to muster the psychological resilience to do it, particularly in this like distraction economy. But <laughs> permanent or dominant zone, but that wasn't what I was going to say actually. But just wanted to comment on that. Um, I was going to just mention, you know, we talk about theories of change, and um, and I, it really struck me when I was reading um, pirating the pirates that that the, the, the story you, you talk about, Kester, with the um, you know trying to create this noise on social media and it just getting knocked down. This computer says no response that we get so mm. often, so dehumanizing, um, but is a you know, a, a symptom of modern life. And yet I have a story in, in our book in How to Be More Pirate about where the opposite has happened, where a young woman challenged the home office and got her, her friend freed from a, a legal detention centre by being pirate and, and whipping up a bit of a campaign around it and putting pressure on them. And that was, you know, one of our stories of victory. And I think I just made, uh, having like interviewed also lots of activists and change makers and people trying to do this work over the three years, I don't think there is one way. I don't think this is, and this this is core to the pirate spirit and identity for me is 
be okay with the uncertainty of, of experimentation that we we're all our collective experience from now on into the future of the chaos we're living is uncertainty and so what we're trying to do here is build that identity not relying in the way that our organizations rely on this linear process of we do this and then we do this and then we do this and there's a framework for this and there's a theory of change that there isn't there are okay. tactics there are strategies and they and they work depending on who you are as well and who's in your crew and so you've got to you know recourse inwards to that internal like the, the internal tools we have more so what we call using a, a compass not a map but um yeah i just think i wanted to share that like i don't think there is a a one a one way uh, yeah. through this and thank you so much paul because that's been you know been very encouraging for me as well um i'm kind of at both points of being ready to give up and leave um, in the institutions that that i'm a part of and it, and it is just everyday attrition of of trying to battle with a system that doesn't mean to bully any, bully anyone and I, I do really believe that there are very few genuinely bad actors out in there in the world you know most people are trying to do the right things but caught up in in systems that actually in, in terms of their large effect do end up dehumanizing people and i think that's a, the, the the key phrase alex is that you know we end up being dehumanized by that because we then serve and say well you know we ought to do this because maybe it's always been done that way or whatever and and trying to resist that is really really um fatiguing it, it it really is and and doing that over a long period of time is extraordinarily difficult mm. but that you know that's the call that that that's what it's about and i think you're absolutely right in terms of the tactic and the strategy for that you know it is about having the compass rather than that because very often the map doesn't exist um so yeah thank you thank you for that that that's been really encouraging for me personally yeah we have a Timo had a we have a, a other artists on this call, so I'd love to hear from from Timo as well. What tell us some of your thoughts about all this stuff? Well, I was thinking actually a few different things the way this weaves together. Alex, your point there, I think it illustrates the point that um, we we need to give ourselves permission to be okay with change and experimentation. And the thing that Kester's wonderful piece inspired me to in my little response um, was how like so many of the principles we're talking about with pirates are like artists. So you asked earlier, you know, what, what's your response as an artist? Well, I think the kind of the, the implication of the, the original piece there, Kester, your piece, is false pirates. It's people pretending to be of the people when they're not. And I think chaos shows itself surprisingly quickly Whereas if we were all living with much more of the attitude of artists, and I mean all of us, uh, giving ourselves permission to experiment and using the principle of, yeah, bodies, embodiment. This is like a fundamental principle of art that you throw yourself in physically, emotionally, time and money, risking it all emotionally just because you, you can't not have a go at getting this thing out of you and saying what if. And the more the point here is that it's not mythical, it's intentional. Mm. The more you do it, the more confident you get. And I think that's sort of an extension of the pirate thing, that to, you know, to be a maverick, but, but bring that extra dimension of vision 
And so when you talk about the Tazis being a failure, I think, well, if you think of them as just expensive Burning Man noises and jamborees, uh, maybe. But I know somebody like Jeremy Johnson from uh, Nero would say, well, actually, in a way, the way people lived 10,000 years ago before we really stick, stuck spades in the ground was more like this constant fluid caravan, a bit like a Burning Man, where we built things and then took them down and kept moving. That, again, is a principle of an artist, that you know you're in flux like the rest of nature. So I think the more we practice trying to make marks and trying to show vision, that was really what my point was as a reaction. We've got to actually start showing ourselves and each other what futures we're fighting for. It's not enough to just try and subvert and live in the gaps between the maps and the territory. We've got to, st- we've got to stop giving a flying fuck, excuse my language, about credibility. <laughs> I'm speaking to myself most there because I'm so not cool. But mm-hmm. uh, we need to, artists need to stop worrying about being cancelled and stop worrying about making credible stuff and just from the heart say, actually, this is the world I want to see. And I know it only shows up when we test it in little enclaves. So rather than Taz's like protest zones... I think we need to think of them. I'm starting to think of the word enclaves, where little solar punk enclaves of what ifs. We just pop them up and try them and demonstrate them. I think it's artists that have the courage to do that, even when they're beaten down and they're pulling out emotional truth. So, yeah, I think embodiment is just one of the principles of artistic living and artistic practice that we could teach everyone to just start boldly saying, here's the future I want. So, that was really the thought that came out of the piece originally. And I think. Um, just to refer to some of the other work I've done on on um, on AI, and as we as we come into a society where there's so much more in terms of algorithms and and robotics and and machines, as it were, and I think there's this this is really interesting thing where machines are being pushed towards being more embodied and almost becoming more human. Um, so we see these kind of things about, you know, robots that look a bit human or the rest of it. And the technologies get smaller and smaller and they kind of disappear inside of us. But the biggest danger is the other way around, is that we actually become yeah. more like machines. Yeah. yeah, That's the key danger, is that we as beings become algorithmically controlled. And I, I absolutely agree with you that the, the fundamental calling as an artist is just to hold on to that sense of, I'm a human. You know, I am not an algorithm or a machine, and I'm going to just put that out there in terms of, you know, what's what's the best way to be that? So there's a brilliant book by a guy called Brian Christian called The Most Human Human, um, which is kind of brilliantly hilarious as well, is that he went to the competition, the annual competition where different uh, systems put their little kind of AIs up against humans to try and become, you know, see if they can convince someone that there's actually a human behind the screen hmm. dialoguing with them. And of course, if you're going to do that, have your kind of chatbot and it responds perfectly. You've also got to have a bunch of humans in your control group who are trying to become convinced people that they're human. So what do you write on a screen to convince somebody that you're a human? And that's really like, what, what do you do? How could I can, how can I convince you that this person on this Zoom is not a sophisticated AI? What's the most human thing that I could do in order to do that? Um, now, you asked my... If I might break up, I think, or break in. 
in one sense, you can't. And that's yes. the point. Get out on the street. Forget this single bandwidth thing that we've got yeah. on here that takes away the complexity, the vital yeah. complexity of the body that makes everything much more 3D and complex. And that's how life works. The single yeah. bandwidth transaction here is, in a way, bollocks. But also, what you do is, is the back to your theme of consistency and consistency of ideas, of vision, of value. Yeah. You can communicate that in time on a channel, actually, but it will it can yeah. only come as a wellspring of who you know yourself to be. And this makes me think of someone like Tyson Junker Porter, the uh, Aboriginal thinker, writer. I so heard on one of his more recent podcasts where he's talking about the difference between northern white blokes like us and the culture that's basically damaged the world and a more indigenous viewpoint that's so obvious to them, they go, oh, yeah, I didn't think to explain it. It's the... It's the leadership and, high, and lack of hierarchy, but personal responsibility for the collective. You carry with you everywhere. And we're so used to top-down stuff mm-hmm. that we need to be coerced. But if you were thinking more with the land, you just carry those values with you everywhere and know that you're culpable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's that idea of, you know, of a consistency uh, of approach. And again, you know, Johnny, just that that consistency of being in that place, doing that thing as, as you've done with Grace for so many years is, is extraordinary. Uh, you know, I was going to say, if you want to ask a bunch of sixth formers, what do you do to convince somebody that you're human? You either, you know, slash open your arm and do an act of violence or you have an orgasm and it's like sex and death. You know, they're, they're the two things that are kind of at the polars of, of, of human experience. It's kind of really fascinating about that. But that idea, and as a, beautiful kind of plea at the end of brian christian's book about look we have got to hold on fast to our bodily humanity because the danger is not that the robots will become human and we can't distinguish but that we will just simply become subsumed as machines you know drones working for amazon drones working for these organizations and it's that sense Mm. of creative danger and risk of going on the account of being on the ship of taking that journey you know taking control of the means of production as the the kind of marxist would put it in in that is is so vital yeah we're getting some comments in the chat uh, recommending marshall McLuhan, understanding yes. media i mean just this idea of you know the the prophet writing in the 60s right about like what what our medium is doing to us and and how we are adapting our brains to to the technology the latest technology we're we're letting it conform us you know yeah um i had a now uh, oh yes another uh, comment all watched over by machines of love and grace the adam curtis documentary again really highly recommend these ones just these are people really thinking about yeah <laughs> how what happens when when we allow these these systems to define us rather than us define them right I, I had a question for you. I, we're about to come into land. So because I'm a narcissist, Kester, I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question based on you quoted me in your in your book. And you, you talked about my talking about gentle space. And we had Johnny talk about gentleness. We had some other people talk about gentleness. But in 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 your piece, Kester, you said I, ha- I struggle with the word gentle. It suggests a meekness, a softness that is easily crushed by the corporate machine. So we're just talking about the corporate machine and the media machine and the technology machines. Uh, you don't like my word gentleness. Tell me, tell me why not? What's what's 
what's happening with the word gentle? You don't like gentleness? If I say I don't like it, but that's on me rather than on anyone well, maybe else. Well, maybe and you think, don't. Maybe and you I do. think, and I think your your essay was fantastic, and it challenged me to to rethink that idea of 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 what it would mean to be a gentle presence in a very brutalizing system. Right. And I think the you know the initial reaction is we've got to be hard and tough if we're going to survive out there. Um, and I think the, the, so I kind of initially read that and was like, oh gosh, you know, gentleness, surely that's like, you know, meekness and softness. And I was like, no, yeah. no, wait, hold on a minute. Actually, the idea of, of being gentle is about having that sense of honor. And we talk about, you know, a gentleman, that's not to kind of, you know, mm. put it into gender roles, but, but it's that idea of, of gracefulness. And a solidity to it mm-hmm. that then brought me around thinking, no, 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 that, that's absolutely right. It's not, you, you know, the, the way that that language has been returned to us is about softness, about meekness. And it's not that actually. Right. It presents itself as nonviolent. But my God, you know, Gandhi was a gentle person. <laughs> he was not, he was not a soft person. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, so my 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 reaction to the word was not about what you'd written but about my response to it and having to yeah. adjust to that and i think that's very very important that that idea of 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 that sense of being gentle with one another mm. in a brutalizing world is so important which ends up being like one of the most rooted and grounded things Absolutely. you can do and it's also so against the system so it's pyrotechnical yeah. Yeah, it's deeply human, you know, and and to you know to finish on that key idea of piracy and there's this kind of thing like oh my god, you know, pirates are so tough and the rest of it. But you know, look at that archetypal pirate with the hook hand and the eye patch and the peg leg. Oh my god, there's a really inclusive idea of disability here, you know, <laughs> because if you lost your hand on a naval vessel, yeah. you were thrown overboard. Yeah, that was it. You were thrown overboard. So the sense of inclusion and diversity and that gentleness, you know, raiding a slave ship and saying to the slaves, right, you can come join us or we can set you free. Yeah. Like, my God, to experience that gentleness of, 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 of those values of grace must have been extraordinary. But it's not a softness. Yeah. I think that is a good place to stop. Kester Bruin, thank you so much. Your book with the Unfold Media, the Yoho Journal, Pirating the Pirates, is the latest one out. And I would just remind everybody here, if you haven't read it yet, you could very happily go to unfold.media and put in the little code TENT10 and you would even get a discount. But I recommend that in any way, buy steel, right? Steel, we can steal this book, can't we? (laughs) If you can figure out how to steal it, you're welcome to. But other than that, why not? get it in a uh, a human and uh, 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 generous way from Unfold Media. Thank you so much, Kester. Thank you so much, Timo and Alex and Philip and Barry and, and everyone who has talked and contributed. We're so glad that you came. We thank you very much, Paul and Alicia, for creating this thing and making some gentle space for us all to have our, our talks together.
It's Genuinely, thank joy. you, everyone. Thank you. I hope this thank is the you. first of a thing that will become a real life meeting very soon. We'll let you know. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But until then, farewell. Oh